This is Ian Hartley. And I'm Warren Kay. Welcome to the Rediscovering God podcast. We invite you to join us as we endeavor to see Him more clearly, love Him more dearly, and follow Him more nearly. Hi, Warren. Good afternoon, Ian. So, where does this high greeting come from? That I don't know. I don't know either. So, in English, you say hello. Uh, um, but hi, I sort of associate with uh, chewing gum. Chewing gum? Um, yeah. I, I first heard it from Americans who chewed gum a lot. <laughs> so, I don't know if that's a good association or a bad one, but <laughs> I've never found anybody who could tell me where high came from. I suppose I could Google it. Anyway, today we're talking about rolling stones and the rock mountain. So you listened to rolling stones? I did. I did. Yeah? Much to my parents' dismay. Uh-huh. And did you, do you remember any of the songs they sang? There was a song um, that they sang about, I can't get no satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of yeah. expre- expressing there. Um, what couldn't they get satisfaction about? I don't, I don't remember the, the specifics that they were talking about in the song, but just I suppose just in life, that they couldn't get satisfaction in life. Yeah. So um, I mostly, I never listened to the Rolling Stones, I guess. I was too old or must have been too old. I, I did get into the Beatles, but that's another story for another mm. day. Okay. So, uh, but I do know about the Rolling Stones through the Rolling Stones magazine. They've had some very good articles in really? that magazine. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So that's my... Um, so recently, I was reading the Gospel of Matthew with two friends who uh, we get together once a week uh, just to read the book of Matthew together. And we were reading in Matthew chapter 7 about the wise man who built his house upon the rock. Yeah, now, you know, I, I've sung that song as a kid, wise man built his house upon the rock, you know, that one with all the actions I've heard kids singing it. I yeah. never stopped to think, what did Jesus actually mean by the rock that the wise man built his house on? So that's how I got started on the stones and rocks and so on. Mm. Um, so do you want to read Matthew 7 uh, from 24 to 27? Sure. It, it just as I recall from memory, it comes right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Do you think it was part of the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, pretty much, I think so, yeah. Yeah. So Matthew 7, 24. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is on the bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike they're teachers of religious law. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I'm trying to chase down what Jesus was actually saying. What is the bedrock he's referring to? And then, like you reminded us, Matthew 7 comes at the end of Matthew 5 and 6, which is uh, Sermon on the Mount. And a lot of other sayings associated with it. So in order to decode what Jesus means by bedrock, I was thinking about some other passages that refer to uh, rock 
in connection with Jesus. And uh, so I want to go there. But before we go there, why did the people uh, receive his teaching as having such authority? And the answer to that question is that he, he'll quote from the Old Testament and then he'll say, but I say. Now, one of the hallmarks of being an educated person is that you can quote authorities from whatever you're talking about to substantiate what you're trying to say. But Jesus doesn't do that. He, he quotes the authorities and then he, he contradicts them. And it must have made sense to these people. Uh, and they give him authority. Mm. There's an interesting thing to me is that, uh, for instance, uh, the Bible has authority for Christians, but it doesn't for atheists. Right. So this, the authority of the Bible is not inherent uh, in the way it's printed or what it's talking about. It's that people give it authority in their lives, like the Muslims give the Quran authority in their lives. But you and I don't give the Quran authority in our lives. Mm -hmm. So they gave Jesus authority. There was something about the way he spoke that really touched their hearts and convicted them. And by the way, authority is a big deal in the Gospel of Matthew. We have it here in this chapter. And then in chapter 9, when Jesus forgives the man led down through the roof, says to him, my son, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders say, well, that's blasphemy. You don't have the authority uh, to forgive people's sins. That belongs to God only. And then you have to go to the temple to get forgiveness. So, and then interesting, uh, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, as he's leaving for heaven, all authority has been given me. Now, he's not just talking about authority in general. He's speaking specifically to the authority to forgive sin, which was what the question was all about in the Gospel of Matthew. Hmm. So, let's... Let's look at probably the most famous passage uh, where Jesus refers to uh, stones and rocks. It's found in Matthew chapter 16, and we'll read from verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? So I just remind you that at Caesarea Philippi, there was the grotto where the Roman god of Pan was worshipped. And the Romans were trying to introduce their gods into Israel. So they used to offer sacrifices to Pan there at that grotto. So when Jesus asked this, his disciples know that he's also asking them, uh, are any of the Israelites starting to worship the Roman gods? Do you want to read 14? Well, they replied... Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then, then he, he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's profound. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Okay, so there's a, a word play here in the Greek that's not evident in English. When he says, notice previous to this, Jesus called him Simon. Now he says to him, you are Peter. In Greek, that's Petros, which means a rock, something you can pick up and carry. And then he says, and upon this, you are Petros, and upon this rock, he uses the word Petra, which means a huge mass of rock that's unmovable. 
there's a, a town uh, just across the Jordan River in Jordan. It's called Petra. And in Petra, you have a building carved out of a piece of solid rock. And that's why it's called Petra. Right. Mm. Um, so that's a good illustration of what this Petra means. And Jesus says on this massive rock, which massive rock? What Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So that, that realization of who Jesus was as the son of God was the rock. Yes. Yes, contextually, you can't miss it. Yeah. Um, so now this verse 19, uh, we don't often talk about this. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. So our friends, the Catholics, use this passage to claim that uh, Peter was the first pope because he was given the keys of the kingdom. So I don't wish to get into that discussion right now, but apparently these keys are being given to the disciples. I mean, there's uh, um, no reason to restrict it just to Peter. So what would it mean uh, to give Peter and the other disciples the keys of the kingdom of heaven? A key is something that gives you entrance, authority over a certain area. If I give you the key to my car, uh, I intend to say uh, you may go into the car and maybe even use it as you wish. Mm -hmm. So we have the keys of the kingdom when we can say to people, you know what? God loves you. He doesn't hold your sins against you. He wants you to be in heaven with him. In that way, you're opening up entrance into heaven for a person. And if you don't tell people, you know, they, they might never have the opportunity to hear it from another human being. I mean, this isn't sort of common uh, talking where you say to another person, listen, I want to open up heaven for you. God's forgiven all your sins. He's written your name in his book of life. And he really wants you to spend eternity with him. Most people don't know that. Mm -hmm. Even Christians, some think that God is uh, some sort of an exacting uh, inspector that's watching to see if you're good enough to get into heaven. So uh, Petros or Peter is man at his best when he recognized that Jesus is Messiah. So that word Messiah, here's some synonyms. Messiah is Hebrew. Christos or Christ is Greek. Same word. Uh, a synonym is anointed one. And anointed one means the person who is in great favor like uh, Saul was anointed as king, David was anointed as king, prophets were anointed. In this case, uh, when Peter says you are Messiah, he just as well could have said you are the Christ, or you are the anointed one, or you are the king we have waited for all these hundreds of years in Israel. Or he could have said saviour. Those are all equivalent terms. I want to look at that last term, Savior. See, that has a, a very particular mean, meaning. When we talk about a lifesaver on the beach, we mean that if you get into trouble swimming in the ocean uh, or the pool, that person is equipped to come and save you from death by drowning. So we don't mean that that person will stand on the shore and shout instructions. We know that a lifesaver in connection with swimming is somebody who rushes in and drags you to safety. Mm -hmm. So here's some other examples. 
your birth mother is your savior. You couldn't birth yourself. So she birthed you, and she didn't need your help. Actually, you had no part in the process. Mm. So she did for you what you couldn't do for yourself, which is what the meaning of savior is. An airline pilot is your travel savior. So Warren, next time you get on a commercial aircraft and you board at the front, you go by the pilot's door there. It's usually open while you're boarding. Uh, just pop in and say, guys or gals, um, if you need any help arriving at your destination, I'm sitting in row 23D. Just uh, call on me. I have my phone with you and I can help you. <laughs> what do you think will happen? Yeah, well, I don't think they'll be calling me in. <laughs> I don't think I could be of much help in that situation. I think they might call somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> they might call and have me escorted off before they take off. Yeah, see, the pilot doesn't need your help. Yeah. He has all the equipment to get to the destination, and he's been trained or she's been trained. And what they need you to do is go to your seat, put your seatbelt on, Mind your own business. So, Ian, as you're telling this, um, I'm thinking of the people that heard this, that the admission or the statement that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one, the king, the savior, because they were being told that the, the Caesar is the Lord. He is the king. He is the savior. And yeah. so it, it was a very political statement that, that uh, they were realizing that Jesus is our savior, not Rome. Yeah. But of course, they had an expectation. The Jews had an expectation of the savior who was going to come. Yeah. So they imagining somebody who's going to drive out the Romans. Mm -hmm. uh, they weren't quite sure about with or without their help. But anyway, their hope was in him. Yeah. So one more example here. If you have a brain tumor, you need a good neurosurgeon. And uh, your part is to show up for the surgery. That's all that's required of you. Yeah. The fact, neurosurgeon certainly doesn't need your help. In fact, they put me on, out to make sure that I don't help. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> a good point. So he's your savior. Um, a savior is somebody who does for you what you cannot do for yourself. Sometimes we think of Jesus as our helper. He's going to help us be good enough to get to heaven. Well, Jesus does help us, but that's not a savior. That's not the Messiah. That's not the anointed one. That's not the Christ. That's a helper. Mm -hmm. a good moral influence in your life. Jesus is far more than that. So another passage uh, that identifies Jesus as the rock is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, so maybe you can read that for us. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food. All of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness." So here Paul is saying, um, you know, it was actually Jesus that went with the Israelites through the wilderness. I mean, would yeah. you agree with that? That's, that's quite a, a statement. And then he says, they all ate the same spiritual food. Uh, what do you think? He's talking about the manna? Well, I, I'm sure that's what they were thinking of, but... Um, 
if if Christ was the rock that provided water for them, then he was the food as well. Yeah. And so for Jesus later says, I am the bread of life. Mm -hmm. I'm the water of life. Yeah, both of those. Yeah. So verse 5 says, yet God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Um, so this is a way of uh, Hebrew speak. Uh, actually, what it means is that they were not pleased with God and they were rebelling against God in the wilderness. And that's why yeah. they ended up there, dead. Yeah. They never did get the relationship God was trying to have with them. Now, God said, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And then in practice, what happened was God was shut up in this one room in the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. They kept him there. And the high priest went to speak to him once a year. That doesn't sound like what God had in mind when he said, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So let's just think for a minute of what the, it says in verse 4 at the end. That rock was Christ. So he guided them with the cloud and the flame at night. He protected them against enemies. He gave them water from the rock. He gave them food in the manor. It says their clothes didn't wear out. They weren't sick. He gave them health. And he longed for a spiritual relationship with them. So this is maybe hinting at what uh, Jesus was saying when he said, um, the wise man builds his house upon the rock. He's talking about this relationship uh, that one can have with Jesus Christ, but is often missed. Um, like in the, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that'll give you eternal life, but you refuse to come to me. Like what Jesus is saying is, you know, you, you think that your studying of the Bible is going to give you eternal life. And having factual information about the Bible is going to give you eternal life. But it's not the Bible that gives you eternal life. I am the Savior. Well, and, and then looking at the Sermon on the Mount, this is kind of his final illustration. Mm -hmm. And and he, he keeps talking about these principles that they knew, but internalizing them. Yeah. They weren't just these principles that they were to live by. He internalizes them so that, you you know, he teaches them about anger. But it's it's how they felt about people that was important, not not the anger that they had or the, the, the what they actually did. Um, and, and so it seems that like what you're saying is it's not just living by these principles of what we should do is having a relationship with the Savior. So maybe we should just talk a little bit about what it means to have a relationship. Sure. Just again. So we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. The first point is that you need to have purposeful communication uh, with the person you want a relationship with. So it's not good enough to talk about uh, the weather and politics and COVID-19. Hmm. Purposeful communication is about what's happening inside of you. How do you actually experience this? What happens when the two of us uh, are together doing something? It, it deals with the uh, what's going on on the inside. Yes. You know, um, <clears throat> to be vulnerable means that you share your fears and your hopes with another person. Yeah. It means you share, um, they actually know what you're afraid of. Mm -hmm. And also in the relationship. So another point in having a relationship is you do your best to understand the other person. 
So that, that has some implications. In order to understand another person, you need to listen to them. Yeah. And find out what's really the longing and the interests of their heart. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing that uh, a person that's skilled at listening can know more about what I'm um, going through or what I'm experiencing than I am aware of myself. Yes. Um, so that's that's a real uh, a helpful gift, tool, talent, skill that uh, that some people have by just listening and can know more than is generally known. So it's trying to understand the other person, listening yeah. to their words, uh, reading their body language, uh, remembering what's been said before. And uh, it is a real gift when somebody tries to listen to you. Yeah. I mean, we pay big money for this sometimes because nobody listens to us. We go to a physician or to a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a counselor and pay money just to have somebody to listen to us. And it's no wonder that often people will fall in love with their counselor because that's the first person that's really listened to them. And they feel an attachment there that they haven't had before. Yeah. So the third point is that to have a relationship with a person, you need to be willing to um, give them grace and forgiveness. As, as human beings on this planet, we are also sinners. That means we make mistakes. Um, and no relationship, long-term relationship on this planet can survive unless you're willing to forgive the other person. Well, because that then gives the other person the freedom to be real and, and, and make a mistake and, and have to ask for forgiveness. So those are three points uh, that are necessary in our relationship with, uh, with Jesus, just to put it very bluntly. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we need to communicate purposefully with Jesus. So... Um, we usually communicate with Jesus uh, by prayer. And so often I find that prayers that I can hear are not really purposeful communication. They, they're almost like insulting communication. Mm. Like, for instance, we'll find out that somebody's in hospital. Somebody will mention it and then... Then we'll pray about it and tell God this very same thing again and ask him to do something about it. When we have legs and arms and a mouth and a vehicle, we can go to the hospital mm -hmm. and do something for that person. And yet we sort of download it onto God. That hardly qualifies as purposeful communication. Another point that uh, comes to mind is that... Uh, if every time I saw you, I wanted you to do something for me, <laughs> uh, I don't think our relationship would last very long. Yeah. Unless you're being paid to listen to me. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's talk about uh, listening to the other person in our relationship with Jesus. So, of course, the first thing the person would say is that well, you need to read the Bible to listen to God. So I think we're agreed on that. Do you know of other ways to listen to God or Jesus? Well, I, you know, a couple of ways. Uh, sometimes music really speaks to my heart. Mm -hmm. uh, I think God uses many different avenues to, to communicate if I'm open to listening, whether it's through music, through silence, through being out in nature, um, he's, he is, um, eager to communicate in whatever avenue, um, he can get through. He's not limited. Yeah. Like one of the biggest problems with listening in terms of human relationships is you talk, you want to talk so badly about yourself is that you have no time to listen to the other person. 
when they're busy talking, you're busy thinking of what you're going to say next. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's true for our relationship with Jesus, that we're so full of what we think and believe and uh, that we really have no desire to hear his personal communication with, unless it's along some line that we're particularly interested at that moment. But just for instance, to sit in a quiet place and say, speak to me, Lord. I want to hear your voice. Yeah. Just maybe sit there for 10 or 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. I read a story recently of a mother who was talking with her child and her child was saying, wow, a shower is an amazing thing. And she said, what do you mean? She said, well, I, I get in the shower and I have all of these thoughts that come into my head. And, and she said, well, maybe it's just because you don't have any other distractions when you're in the shower. And, yeah. and so you're open to what is trying to break through into your life through your mind. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. So what about uh, grace and forgiveness in terms of our relationship with Jesus? Now, clearly, he's given us grace and forgiveness. Do we ever need to give God grace and forgiveness or Jesus? I think we do. I, I think, um, you know, I, I didn't choose to get born here. I didn't choose my family. I didn't choose my life situation. And, uh, and, and I have to be honest, my life situation has been pretty good compared to a lot of other people's. Um, but, you know, for some people that have a much more difficult life situation, um, there's, I'm sure there's a, a, a time when we all really uh, need to say, God, you know, I'm not going to hold this against you. I don't understand it. And someday I hope I will. Yeah, I think that's so right. Uh, I'm glad for your insight on that. Uh, now, sometimes Jesus doesn't do what we want him to do very badly. Yeah. And unless we forgive Jesus, we'll end up being agnostics or atheists. And the process runs like this. I really asked God to save my baby. He didn't. I don't think he really cares for me. And the next step is to say, uh, I'm not sure if he's really there. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. And then the next step is, no, I'm pretty sure he isn't there. Yeah. And that's born out of this disappointment that God didn't do what you wanted him to do. In fact, when I'm talking to agnostics or atheists, if I listen long enough, I'll find that disappointment mm. that led them on that journey. That's very interesting. And I think that's very true. Uh, that um, if we harbor those things and aren't willing or able to understand God loves us no matter what, the life situation we end up in, and can just trust him, trust his heart that someday we will understand that we do live on a battlefield and sometimes we will get hurt. And it's not because he doesn't love us. It's because he is honoring our freedom to choose and the freedom that he gives everyone to choose, which limits him as to what he can do. So let's move on to Matthew 21, verse 42 to 44 where Jesus quotes a passage from Isaiah. Do um, you want to read that for us, please? Then Jesus said, then Jesus asked them, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has, not become the corner, has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is a wonderful stone. It is wonderful to see. Just decode that for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the stone that the builders rejected means that uh, this stone doesn't look good enough for the building we busy construct. And then 
has now become the cornerstone, means the stone that we didn't think was good enough has now become the most important stone in the building. So this is exactly what's happening in Jesus' life. People are looking at him, the religious leaders, and they're saying, no, I don't think so. I don't think we can use him. And then it turns out that he is the one that is the great I am. Yeah. And they missed it. So then he, he says in verse 43, you'll read that, please. This is the Lord's doing. It is wonderful to see. Oh, 40, oh, sorry, 43. I tell you the truth. I, I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. At least the first part of that statement, anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces. So if you reject Jesus as your savior, that's really problematic in your life. Mm -hmm. But what about the next part? It will crush anyone it falls on. And I'm thinking now of when Jesus comes the second time and the lost cry out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. It's sort of a cry for mass suicide because their savior is coming back and there's something so terribly wrong in their thinking that they'd rather die than meet Jesus. Hmm. It really um, illustrates the subtleness of sin. Yeah. That it messes with our brains. So here is our Savior coming, and we, we don't want to be in his presence. We'd rather have the mountains fall on us than to be in his presence. You know, this reminds me of Jacob wrestling with the angel who'd come to help him. But he misunderstood, and he thought the angel was an assailant. So he, he wrestles all night uh, with uh, his savior, thinking it's his destroyer. Mm. When you, you mention how messed up our brains can get, uh, that made me think of that. Yeah. So now I want to draw this together. Um, what does it mean to build your house, your life, on the bedrock? So the great longing of the human heart is for more than we are. Uh, inventors, artists, uh, writers all know this. They're reaching out for something. And even our classic fairy tales reveal this. When the princess kisses the frog, it turns into a powerful, handsome prince. When the prince kisses Sleeping Beauty, she awakes to a wonderful life of romance. The prodigal son returns to be a servant. His father treats him as his privileged son. He calls for a designer robe, a rich ring, fine sandals, and they kill the fatted calf. All that was to convince the servant son, that he was the son. You know, it's very interesting to me that uh, in Revelation 21, verse 8, sorry, in Revelation uh, 3, verse 21, it says this, those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. So what is this victory? Other translations use those who overcome. What is this overcoming? This uh, is what the prodigal son had to overcome. It was this pathetic failure of his imagination about what his father was really like. You know, he, he did not see his father as this gracious, forgiving man who when he came home would say, Oh, my son, I'm so glad you're home. He saw his father as somebody who would say, well, you've spent your inheritance. 
you want to stay here, you can stay in the servants' quarters. Yeah. So this is why in Revelation 21, verse 8, uh, it starts out by saying uh, the cowards and a lot of other despicable people are outside the city. So I always wondered, what's cowardice got to do with Because the last thing in the world I want to be called is a coward. Why, why would cowards be outside the city? Because they didn't have the courage to believe what Jesus is trying to get us to believe. Hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. It is the coward who wants to be a servant, a slave, because their imagination just can't grasp how good God is. So, um, yeah, Jesus is saying in 3 verse 21 of Revelation, you're going to sit on the throne with me. That can only mean one thing. You are of royal blood. Mm-hmm. You're a prince or a princess of the realm. That's why you're sitting on the throne. So I want you to read Romans 8, verse 14 to 17, please, Warren. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. So I can't pass over that Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word. The Greeks didn't have an equivalent. That's why uh, Paul reverts back to Aramaic here. Abba means daddy. It is that diminutive term of endearment. It shows a very close relationship. You know, I've had quite a few people in my life say to me, you like a father to me. But nobody ever said to me, you are like a daddy to me. Mm. That is reserved for my two daughters. Nobody else can actually say that to me. Yeah. I think you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So this now we call him Daddy, dear Daddy. Now notice, his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. See, it's the spirit that has to help us recognize who we are. We can't even do this on our own. It's just beyond our imagination. And then he compounds his word picture. And since we are his children, so we've started out as children now, adopted children, we are his heirs. It's getting stronger. In fact, together with Christ, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. I mean, how strong can it get? We are heirs with Christ, meaning everything Jesus inherited, we inherit with him. So let me read Galatians 3.29. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. So let's just review God's promise to Abraham. He said to him, look at the stars, feel the grains of sand in your hand. You're going to have children like that. You're going to possess everything you can see. Never happened for Abraham. Mm -hmm. Only he grasped it and believed it by faith. It's easier for us to understand now that Jesus has come. And we know there are two billion Christians on earth. Do you want to read the last verse? Galatians 4, verse 7. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. So I I just want to uh, 
let my mind run a little bit with what we've been reading. Jesus knows me by name. I am his fellow heir. I am precious to him. He has forgiven all my sins and written my name in his book of life. I am Jesus' royal brother. Mm. We are heirs together of God's glory. Jesus has no interest in my failures. His interest is that I learn to think the way he does about myself and others. He wants to inspire and fire my imagination with wonder. In the movie, The Chosen, when Jesus invites Matthew, the tax collector, to become a disciple, Peter is most upset with Jesus. He makes it very clear to Jesus that a tax collector doesn't fit into the band of followers that Jesus is accumulating. It is if Peter has no understanding of how he doesn't fit either when Jesus calls him to be a disciple. Yeah. So Peter's imagination was pathetically poverty-stricken. So when I think about that, all I can do is cry out, Oh, Lord, fire my imagination. Let me dare to think as you do. Yeah, amen. And it really, um, it needs to be something that we can imagine before it will become a reality in our lives. Yeah. Um, but if we can imagine it, and, and articulate it, then gradually it becomes more real, more and more real. Uh, you cannot become something you can't imagine. Yeah. I mean, God wants to do this for us, but if we can't imagine it, it's not going to happen. And I, I love the, the, um, the reference to, to the stories that, you know, the movies and the fairy tales that we have all grown up with and been drawn to, and they resonate with us because we long for something more. And, and, and God has placed that deep within us. And we tell those stories uh, as a way of just trying to articulate what he has placed deep within our heart and soul that he, he longs for something so much better for us than what we can even imagine. And he longs for us to, to grasp, to, to grapple with our, our imaginings of what he has, his imaginings of what he has for us. That's why they're classic stories. Yeah. Is because they resonate with us. And one of the sadnesses is that uh, they never decoded. Mm -hmm. People don't stop and ask, so why do we keep retelling this story generation after generation? Yeah. Even with the story of the prodigal son, uh, it's dealt with at such a shallow level. And the, I, I'm reading a book by Jean Vanier, who started the large uh, homes for dysfunctional people. Uh, the book's title is Becoming Human. Mm. And he's, the first chapter is about longing, loneliness. And he says that in each one of us, there's a loneliness that's driving us. It drives us for community with other people. It drives us for community with God. And it drives us towards creative communication in art mm. and literature and music and so on. And he says, when you don't uh, deal with your loneliness creatively, it becomes sadness or depression. Mm. And uh, that's what we're talking about here, yeah? this loneliness for what we were made to be that we have not yet become. And Jesus came because our imaginations couldn't grasp it. He came to live it out for us on the planet, hoping that we would look at his life and see what happened after he was resurrected and say, wow, that can happen for me too. Mm -hmm. Help me to believe.
Yeah. Well, you know, we were talking earlier about how does God communicate to us, whether it's through his Bible or for music or nature or in the stillness. But he sent Jesus as his word to communicate this reality to us that we, how he sees us. And he wants us to grasp that and risk his life to be able to help us understand that. Come, let us pray. Dear God, it's a delight to be in your presence. As we've tried to grasp by imagination what you have in mind for us, we feel inadequate and we cry out to you. Help us to believe the wonderful destiny you have for each one of us. Let us live in that presence, knowing that we are not junk, but that we are precious to you. And that if we trust you, our wildest dreams will become reality. You wonderful, we worship you, words are inadequate. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this journey to understand the God that Jesus knew. And if you'd like to share this with friends, we'd appreciate that. In fact, we have created a new website called rediscoveringgod.ca. You can refer your friends to that site, and they can see all the podcasts that we have produced so far, and the ones uh, in the future will be posted there. Uh, You can make comments. You can join us in a dialogue and a conversation so that we can discover what difference this is making for you or any questions that you have that we can endeavor to answer or perhaps address in a future podcast. So that's rediscoveringgod.ca. In addition to the website, we've also created a WhatsApp site called Rediscovering God. So if you're on WhatsApp or would like to join us, uh, just search for us there or send me an email at wkay. S is in Sam, I-X, at gmail.com. And I'll be glad to add you to our group and we can continue the dialogue there.